0: Welcome to Moneymaker, the podcast that gives you the tools to enrich your life in every sense of the word. I'm your host, Nellie Galan. Let's get started. I'm so happy to have Ruben Navarrete on the show, a dear friend, a dear old friend, and someone who is very important in our community. I mean, Ruben, you are the most widely read Latino columnist in the country, and I'm going to just start there. You're nationally syndicated with the Washington Post Writers Group. You appear in 115 newspapers. You're always contributing to Fox News, USA Today, everyone and their mother. You've been on everything. You are very prestigious. We all think very highly of you in our market. And you really are the person that follows the Latino market like no one else in a very serious way. And I think people should know you're a graduate of Harvard College and the John F. Kennedy School of Government. And you authored a very important book, A Darker Shade of Crimson, The Odyssey of a Harvard Chicano, and the story of how Latinos deal in Ivy League schools and how all of that happens. Welcome. I love having you. And I think we have to tell everybody how long we've known each other and how we met.
1: Nellie, it's so good to be with you. I'm so glad to be and proud to be on your podcast. You and I met way back in the 90s. I can tell you that in 1994, I had the chance to... host a radio show, a nightly radio show for KBC in Los Angeles with my co-host Tavis Smiley. And so every night, nine o'clock to midnight, he and I were hosting this radio show and the Los Angeles Times took note of that. And they did a cover story on their Sunday calendar section with him and me on the cover. And so we started getting lots of phone calls and interest. And I got a call from your office and your production team at the time. You were housed at the studio at 20th Century Fox. And it was one of your assistants saying, "You know, Nellie Galan, you may have heard, she'd love to have a chat with you and come by the studio. So I sure enough, I go by the studio. I'd already read a little bit about you. I was intrigued. I showed up and it was a great meeting and a great introduction to you and your world. And just even then, the idea that you had that television and film needed to better reflect the demographics of America. And that meant better reflecting Latinos, the up and coming soon to be largest minority in the country. And you were right and way ahead of your time. So you and I have known each other that long.
0: Well, and it's amazing because it says a lot about when you're younger and then when you're older and wiser, because now you're a journalist and I'm somebody that has a whole television background, but now we're both interested in money and wealth building and how we can make our community have more equity in terms of money, which I guess is something that happens with age, right? You realize we all have to grow up and think a little differently, but I want to start with your career because- so many people, I mean, I myself started out as a journalist. Remember, I did that teenage 60 minutes type of show and I loved that field. And that was what I thought I was going to do for a while. And then I switched and went into entertainment. But so many people like you have a manifest destiny for speaking the truth and really uncovering things. And, and I feel like I love that too. That's why I love so many documentaries and all that. Talk about how you decided to do that and also how art communities and how Latino families think about that because they kind of want you to go make money. And these are fields that it is a big calling. So can you tell me how you got into it and sort of what the trajectory has been?
1: Yes, that's a very good question. So you're right. I think a lot of immigrant communities, most Latino parents would be incredibly happy if their kids just went to three professions. You know, let's play it safe. Doctor, lawyer, engineer. There are other good jobs out there. For sure, you can work at a bank, you can be a teacher, you can be a policeman, fireman, all those things are admirable professions. But in terms of immigrants, the prestige that goes with doctor, lawyer, engineer, okay? And that's ultimately where I I started. I wanted to become a lawyer. My dad was a cop for 37 years on the job in Central California. And I grew up around lawyers and judges. I wanted to be a lawyer. I went to Harvard with the intention of becoming a lawyer. But along the way, I crossed paths with a famous writer named Richard Rodriguez. Who wrote a book called Hunger of Memory years ago and has written books since then? And he complimented my writing and took me under his wing and said, You know, if you want to work on your writing and work on writing op eds, I was only 21 at the time, I'll see what I can do in terms of getting one published. So at that little moment, I heard this voice in my head saying, You know, you always loved writing. And I'd gotten some positive enforcement from my high school English teachers saying, You know, this kid has writing ability, 15, 16, 17 years old, they saw something. And it took me a long time to get up the courage to say, instead of writing being a hobby and being a lawyer during the day and writing at night, I want to make writing and communication and media work my profession. And so that's what I did. And I remember it was a scary moment. I had it was a spring break, probably in the late late eighties. And I had to go tell my parents. And it was this big like moment, right? Where I said, you know, I know you always expected me to be a lawyer and I, you know, I was gonna go to law school and all this, but I really love the idea of writing and I really want to strike out there and do that. And so once I crossed that hurdle and realized that I would rather be, and I think I remember saying this myself, Nellie, I'd rather be a poor writer than a wealthy corporate lawyer and be miserable at my job. And it all kind of works out. In the long run, you find that if you do what you're good at and you follow your passion and you're really good at it, guess what? You're going to be well-paid for it. Because if you're really good at something, if you can do something right, well, right, fast, take the complicated, make it simple, do all these things that I've been taught to do over these many years, compensation won't be a problem. But you don't know that at the beginning. At the beginning, you don't see the end of the tunnel. You just see more and more tunnel.
0: Now, sometimes in the tunnel, your business gets disrupted and it changes. So you have to be able to pivot. But let's talk about when you first started. What was the business model for a journalist? Was it to just get a job at a great place? How would you get in the door back then?
1: That's a really good question. And The reason I'm in a position to answer that is I now have a role, sometimes formal, sometimes paid, informal role, asking as a mentor to younger journalists. And so when I go speak to a given college or university and I speak to journalism students, I realize that they're operating in a different world than the one I grew up in. For me, at that time, if you're graduating from college in 1989 or 90, you're right. The idea was just to get a good job. If you could work at a bigger newspaper like the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, great, good for you. If you could work at ABC News, any of those things, any one job was fine. Today, though, when you go speak to young people at at universities, if they're majoring in journalism, they want to build their own brand. Now, this is something that really speaks to Nelly Galan, right? You understand this better than most, but they want to build their brand around their own perspective as a journalist, have a name attached to it and be able to do a bunch of different things. They understand that you have to be fluent today as a journalist in video, in audio, in print, spoken word, in front of crowds. And that was not true masantes. Masantes, you could be good in one thing. You could be a television journalist who was not a good writer, or you could be a writer who was not good on TV and still make a pretty good living. Today, that's all different.
0: Well, you also said something else, which is that back then, Most journalists were being taught, except for maybe Geraldo Rivera at the time that went off the deep end with his brand. But back then, you were really taught to be in the middle. You really couldn't take a side. It was never about you. And in fact, those kind of people that were very like brand outward were considered kind of rogue, right?
1: Exactly. They always tell you in journalism school, do not become the story. Report the story, but don't become the story. And now in 2023, That's all changed. And most journalists that I could name off the top of my head who are doing great things on Substack or building their own companies or going out and raising capital, $20 million here or there, they're doing it around the strength of their brand name. It's completely different than what we were taught.
0: And it's not just their brand name, it's their voice, right? So they have to have a very specific point of view in order to build that brand, right? And you have to take a side. So I feel like you've always written about whatever you think is right or wrong or whatever, and not necessarily to one side or the other, right? So how has your voice changed in order to adapt to a world where each of us have to be entrepreneurs and build our own business?
1: I think that there's been a lot of bad advice. You know how this works. If you look back on your life, you've gotten all these pieces of bad advice. Sometimes it's your lawyer, your business manager, or a mentor who gives you bad advice. And I think one piece of bad advice might've typically been Do one thing, find that niche, or maybe on the opposite side, go off and become a general reporter, cover a bunch of different things. And the idea of becoming your own brand and sort of figuring out the economics of that, I think eventually you begin to realize that if you are unpredictable, that helps. If you are someone who's going to be interesting because you are unpredictable, if you're brave, that helps. You're trying to find a way to stand out in the market. If you were a soft drink and you were competing with other soft drinks, you'd want to stick out on the shelf as being the different one. And likewise, as a journalist, I came into a scenario where a lot of journalists were on the Republican team or the Democrat team. They had their jerseys on, even though they were Latino. This really discouraged me. You would find Latinos who were Democrat first and Latino second. If they had to choose between the Democrat Party and the Latino Party, or Latinos, they typically sold us out to the Democrat Party. Republican, same thing. You have Cuban-Americans and others who might be thinking Republican first and Latino community second. And so I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to choose a team. I'm not going to be a Republican or Democrat. I'm Ruben in the center. And if anything, I'm going to be an American first and then a Latino. And then way down the bottom, I'll worry about politics. So it worked because ultimately, one of the reasons I've been around for so long, you know, almost 25 years in syndication, is that everybody else was picking sides and choosing teams. And I just decided, you know, I'm just going to call balls and strikes. So people are confused. One day he sounds like a Republican, one day he sounds like a Democrat. And guess what? That means I'm sounding like your comadre because I know your comadre. I have a comadre. I have tias. and my tias are conservative and liberal depending on the issue.
0: That's right. So another thing that's happened in journalism that I think it sort of begs a question is before when you were a journalist, you had a job and you made money and this and that. Then all of these news organizations started disbanding and everybody became a freelancer. And then you get paid like by the day or whatever so many people just dropped off the face of the earth because you just couldn't make a living or you had to have a side hustle. Tell me the trajectory of that, what happened, and then how did we go from that to people monetizing their own brand?
1: I think that it's fair to say that journalists are probably among the least entrepreneurial class that I could name. And many people who I know who had to go through the rough patch of being laid off by newspapers or fired or canceled they didn't know how to bounce back from that. Because all they had ever done was that old model of, I work for a company, I get a paycheck, that's it. And I have a normal life, I get to have weekends off and nights off. Meanwhile, I'm working during the day, I'm also working at night, I have side hustles, I have other jobs, and it is very unusual. I think that most people would have been very, very content to just have one job. And so the idea that I would have multiple jobs at once, I'll give you an example, when I went to Dallas and I took a job at the Dallas Morning News, it came along with a separate job at the Washington Post, writing my syndicated column. And then you start getting offers to be on television. And if you say yes to that, you might end up on television. You might get a contract at CNN, where they're paying you to appear on television. Then you might get an opportunity to go give a speech, and you go give speeches for money. And before you know it, you're sort of doing all these things. And if you pay attention to others who are out there, African-Americans and white journalists who are out there, they're likewise trying to make money in all those different ways. And nobody sits you down as a Latino and says, this is the way you're going to make money. It just sort of happens organically because these opportunities come and you keep saying yes. And as Latinos, we're very hard workers, and it's almost against our nature to turn down work. So we keep getting offers. and We keep saying yes. And before you know it, when you sit down and do your taxes, you think I'm making money from TV, speaking, radio, all these different things, and you're piecing them all together. So that, I think, is a smart way to develop your career as a journalist, to diversify your earnings. And then ultimately, as you said, how do we get to this point? We got to this point, Nellie, because at some point, we were all tethered to these media companies. And whether it was CNN or The Washington Post or The Dallas Morning News or anywhere else I worked, I was going to do well as long as they were doing well. But when those media companies began to struggle, traditional legacy media began to struggle. They were laying off people at ABC News, at CNN, at The Washington Post, laying off people. The New York Times almost went broke until they had a huge investment from Carlos Slim, who they put on the board, the Mexican billionaire. So as media begins to struggle, the message goes out to people like me that you better learn how to be in business for yourself. And Ruben Navarrete Inc. is ultimately going to be what you need to go forward. You can still have these relationships, but I can no longer put all my eggs in one basket, mark CNN, ABC, or whatever, because those companies aren't dependable.
0: Well, like I say in my book, there's no Prince Charming. When you realize that a maid isn't going to save you, and then your boss isn't going to save you, and the brand of a corporation isn't going to save you, and therefore the government's not going to save you. And I think that that's a very hard pill to swallow in your innocent phase of life. But the fact is, you really do ultimately have to be self-sufficient and figure it out. And that also begs the question, because let's be honest. What is the personality traits of people that are attracted to certain fields? Journalism does attract a lot of times introverted people that are thinkers, right? And that are writers and then some communicators, right? But the truth is that to be an entrepreneur requires to found a company, to be a founder, take sometimes a more extroverted approach, a sales approach. You have to cultivate other parts of yourself. So when you talk to young journalists, because I know journalism schools are still not teaching all this stuff. I mean, it's crazy. They teach you still journalism. They don't teach you the business. That's why I think I had to write my book because whether you're a plumber, a journalist, a doctor, none of those people know how to run a business. So what do you say to young people about what are the right traits in today's world for a journalist?
1: I've often thought a good pairing would be if someone went to get a master's in journalism, like at Columbia, one of the best schools in the country for journalism, but they also got a law degree at the Columbia Law School. But what you just said makes sense as well, because another great path is to get an MBA while you're getting a journalism degree, because then you're talking about not just monetizing journalism for yourself, but you're going to be incredibly useful to the profession of journalism to these companies in terms of helping them make money.
0: Now there are new courses in schools that it's kind of like digital business, digital media business. And I think that's even a better combo because you have to learn how to promote yourself.
1: Right. Learn how to promote yourself. Learn what sets you apart. Know your story. The funny thing is whether you're doing a job interview or you're writing an essay for college as a young teenager, at some point you have to learn how to tell your story. Latinos are famously bad at being able to tell our story. We are humble. We're self-effacing. We don't like in the back of my mind, I always tell people we have like the Tia's voice in the back of our mind. You know, Mira Nelly and, and Ruben, you know, the, you're on television now. That. And I think that in the back of our mind, we've always been concerned with being perceived as leaving our community behind, getting really too big.
0: It's because we're taught that the number one value in our community is humility. And this is a country that doesn't really respect humble people. It wants you to be loud.
1: We're at the cusp of a possibility that a lot of people find frightening of a second Donald Trump presidency. Nobody gets elected twice in this country if you're meek and mild and humble. And Donald Trump's the opposite of that. So the message that America is really screaming at Latinos is you need to promote yourself. If you can back it up, it's not bragging. And you've gotta be able to tell your story because I think a lot of us are really great, Nellie, at telling our story. If somebody calls to interview us, let me tell you about my tia. Let me tell you the story about my grandmother and my mother someone who came to this country and you won't be able to shut us up. We're willing to tell that story, but that's always in response to somebody asking a question. I'm talking about creating your own story, saying your story, telling your story, putting it out there on Twitter, writing a book, putting a book out. That's not something that comes easily to us. And so the degree to which I speak to young people, I always tell them, yes, you want to be able to diversify and be fluent in different offerings, but you also want to be able to start at good stories. And the first story that you need to know how to tell is your own story. And Latinos have great stories. That's really the thing that pains me, that this is a community that has such wonderful stories, but typically reluctant to tell them.
0: Ruben, if you had told me in the 90s when we met, and I'll remind you that at that moment, Latinos were happening. Edward James almost was on the cover of Time. We had Robert Rodriguez, this young guy that was making movies. We had all kinds of heroes, Henry Cisneros, and I was at Fox. I mean, there hasn't been a Latina with a big deal at a studio since then, or a Latino. So when you look at all that, and you also now look at the facts before us, you know, McKinsey did a report on the economic disempowerment of Latinos after the pandemic, the worst couple of years in 40 years economically. They're also about to reveal the worst numbers ever in the entertainment business. You know that since I've been focusing on small business owners, most of our small businesses, so many of them failed after the pandemic. Most of us did not get the PPP loans. We didn't even apply. We have terrible immigration problems. Yet we make the best of it. What is going on with our community and how have we gone so far backwards in 25 years?
1: I did a profile for Hispanic Executive Magazine where I did a number of profiles of prominent people. One of the people I spoke to is John Leguizamo, the actor, producer, and playwright. And he had this great line. He goes, our superpower is Latinos is that we can eat crap and get stronger. We fall, we fail, we get canceled, we lose jobs. We get our hearts broken by politicians or whatever it is. And we just get stronger and stronger and stronger. We're not typically kind of the snowflake generation that needs to come forward and constantly be reinforced and nurtured. We talked about being humble. One of the things that helps the humility is we never get the credit we're due. <laughs> so we're trying to make life in its black and white world with a black and white paradigm, and whether it's Hollywood or Washington, D.C. or New York media or whatever. They don't quite know what to do with us. And so we always have to work five times harder. We don't get the credit. But what that does to us, though, is it makes us non-reliant on the credit. We don't need to be told that because we don't handle praise well. We're not used to it. <laughs> so we're, we're used to quite like the opposite. In terms of where we have not arrived and have arrived in the time that you and I have known each other, it's a very important question. I would remind you that in the 1980s, even before you and I met, you had people like Federico Peña, who was the mayor of Denver, you had Xavier Suarez, who was the Cuban-American mayor of Miami, you had Henry Cisneros, the mayor of San Antonio, in the mid-80s. They all came together at a convening and they declared with a lot of other business leaders that the 80s were going to be the decade of the Hispanic. So by the time you and I meet 10 years later in the 90s, there's more talk of that, more talk of that. And ultimately, I think what happens is a number of things. First of all, blacks and whites decided they were not going to yield to us. Blacks and whites decided that while it was cute that we thought this was our decade, and even though we had the numbers, I was working in Dallas when the 2000 census came out, and it was found that there are more Latinos in Dallas, Texas, than whites or blacks. That did not have the effect you might think that, in other words, all the, the jobs, Came to you and the seas parted and everybody bowed down to the latinos if anything it scared the whites and blacks to unite against us <laughs> so we have gotten the short end of the stick from white folks and black folks because our demographics are such and our numbers are so big that people have become intimidated by us so there was that resistance that natural resistance you see it now you see it in the republican party and some of their anti-immigration policies but also in the anti-immigration policies that democrats take up to emulate and impersonate republicans But also, there was another thing, and that is that because we are hard workers and because we have so many options, we kind of give up too soon with regard to things that are not working out. So if you and I go into business together, we see all these opportunities. Think about drilling for oil. If we have an oil field and we start drilling in a hole, a little bit of oil comes up. But after about six months, you come to me and say, Ruben, you know what? That oil well and that one field and that one hole, it's not producing enough oil. So what we do then is we say, let's pull up and go to another part of the field and drill another hole. And so Latinos who got into Hollywood and decided they were going to make movies, once they realized how hard it was and how it was going to take a long, long time, they said, Submit skin, I'll go to law school. You know, I'll go into business. I'll go into telecom. I'll go somewhere else. We have so many options on our plate that, hey, pal, if CNN doesn't want me, great. Don't block the merchandise. Step aside. Let somebody else have a crack. And I think that's where Latinos are. We lost a lot of powerful, creative, talented people who left the media and left entertainment because it was just too hard. And it was a long game. And here you and I are, after 35 years, 30, 40 years, not too many people are this crazy like you and me, okay? They wouldn't have stuck it out this long. (laughs) They've gone into a whole line of work. As you
0: say that, I have to tell you that I was saying to somebody yesterday that I have mentored, as you know, so many Latinas, right? I made an effort. Like when you talk about African-Americans hiring black people, I've hired a lot of Latinos and I've mentored them with the exception of two women. Let's say I've mentored deeply. I don't know, hundreds of Latinas with no fail, but each one has come up to me and said, I go, listen, you can do it. And they go, I don't really want to be you. And it took me aback because you can imagine you're killing yourself to climb the mountain. And the women that are from your community, are like, I don't really want to be you. And they've even said things to me like, why can't I just find a guy to take care of it? And also they see, and you and I've talked about this too, Ruben, that you pay a price for this. As a woman, and you know, Ruben, even more as a man. I'm single at this age. And you
1: know, Latino men don't love women like me. I've known you a long time. It's only because you can't find somebody worthy of you. Understand that. Thank you, Ruben. But my point is.
0: That women today, in young women, I think they've gone backwards. I see my son dating girls that are looking for the husband at like 22. I, I came out post women's movement, post Gloria Steinem, a generation after Gloria Steinem, and we all wanted to be something and felt like we could do anything in this country, right? But the part that we don't say is there is a price to pay for everything. What I see about Latinos is that our parents told us something that I thought was wrong, but in some ways I think I now get it as I'm older and wiser. They told us, don't rock the boat, be quiet. I always say, you know, Cubans are also very misunderstood because here we're so loud and it's a one note loudness because we don't want to talk about our pain. We don't want you to see us sweat, you know? And we don't want to give a regime of Castro, just like the Venezuelans don't want to give the Chavez regime the credit that we're suffering. And as a result, nobody understands Cubans and Venezuelans now. And they think, what's wrong with you people? Right? But the fact of the matter is that our parents told us to lay low because in our countries of origin, if you spoke up, you went to jail. Look at those Cuban rappers now that wrote a song against Cuba and now they're being tortured in jail. So I don't think our African American brothers and sisters, or our white brothers and sisters, understand the perils we have all been through. We just haven't been through them in the United States, so it's not an American story. We think that has something to do with it, that our stories are not told here. The Black story in America is an American story. The Latino story is foreign and immigrant story. Our pain comes from another country.
1: I think that's very important. I think that's true. And I think that we have been reactive when we should have been proactive. As I said, we were waiting by the phone for the phone to ring So they could tell us, hey, you know, we've heard about your life, your career. We want to do a feature and we want to do a story about you. And we're going to send a photographer to your house on Monday and all this. And we're ready to go because we have a story to tell. But that's not how the world works. Ultimately, you've got to be able to pitch your own story to go out there and make your own opportunities. And um, what we found is that the media uh, and, and Hollywood, and they're very similar, two sides of the same coin, they either ignore us or they get our story wrong. And what you were trying to do way back in the 90s at 20th Century Fox and since then and the various jobs you've had is to say, we're going to take charge of our own story because only if we tell it, will it get told right. And so the absence of that, I'm always struck by the fact that I'll run across great individuals who have made $300 million or $400 million as Latinos and nobody knows their name. I'm not reading about them in Forbes. I'm not reading about them in Fortune or at the Wall Street Journal. They've got a story to tell if people will call them, but typically in the black and white world, they're either not interested in us, they don't understand us, they can't understand the complexity of us. There are people within the Cuban American community, friends of mine in Miami, who don't quite understand the intricacies of the entire Cuban American community and how so much of it is dependent not on age, but on when you came. The Latino vote, you and I have a better understanding of the Latino vote than most writers of the New York Times. And so they've just said, you know, it's too complicated. We're not going to write about it because we don't understand it. So we really have to tell our own stories in part because we have now seen with 30 years of evidence that the mainstream either doesn't care about us, doesn't understand us. If they tell our story, they're bound to get it wrong.
0: But Ruben, let me ask you a very tough question because I know you and I can go deep. People like you and I who really have a voice, we really do have a voice and we're chingoners. Like, I don't care. I don't work for anybody. I say the truth and so do you. Hold on, Moneymaker will be right back. Let's get back to the show. So, you would think that people like us, which are few and far between in our community, that actually have a voice, would wanna run for office. And people ask me all the time because they hear me give speeches and I'm like, blah, 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 and they're like, dude, why are you not running for office? And like the last thing on earth I would want to do is run for office because I know how treacherous it is. And I know that my life will be miserable and that I'll be torn apart like a little doll that gets torn apart. What is wrong in the world when people like you and I that have a voice that are brave, we're brave, that we are willing to speak up, don't want to ever run for office. I shouldn't say that about you. I'm let you say that. And so then what we always get, like, we're getting bad seconds, mediocre, or people that are kind of sociopathic. I mean, really, that's what we're attracting.
1: Right. I can think of five U.S. senators who are Latino, and two are Mexican-American, and three are Cuban. And the three Cuban-Americans include Robert Menendez, who's operating under an ethical cloud at the moment, and then Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. And so I hear from my Cuban-American friends all the time, you know, this is the best we have. This is the best our community can offer. I agree with you, and I see the world as you do, that I once entertained when I was obviously at the Kennedy School of Government, you're surrounded by future politicians. One of my classmates at Harvard in my mid career program was Felipe Calderon, who went on to become president of Mexico. You know a lot of politicians. I know a lot of his friends. I've known them a long time. So I'm always intrigued by politics, but not to be the person in the game, in the arena, because while I may have entertained that notion once, I saw what it did to my friends, And one of the things it did to my friends is politics had the effect of turning them inside out in terms of their principles, because everybody goes to Washington thinking they're going to change Washington. And before they know it, Washington has changed them. And the degree to which you and I can be much more effective outside the arena, because when we get into the arena, all of a sudden you find yourself saying things that you never thought you'd say. You find yourself voting for bills you never would have voted for. You find yourself in one of the least powerful positions in the world because you answer to a hierarchy. The Speaker of the House is your boss. They tell you how to vote. They're a member of your party, if not maybe the majority leader, minority leader tells you how to vote. So it's really a misnomer to think that you go into politics for power. The bigger the office, Congress, Vice President, President, the less power you have because you really feel penned in. One of the places where I draw my power in Ellie is I, I've been – fired, you know, laid off, canceled in this world of media 15 times in 35 years. I tell people all the time, if you want to see where independence comes from, it only comes from one of two places. Either you have $10 million in the bank, so you don't have to worry about getting fired because you'll be fine. Or you have what I have, which is the experience of being fired 15 times and knowing that every single time I left a job, I landed on my feet with a better job. It's like leaving a bad relationship, Right. You're like, I used to be in this relationship, my ex-husband, Menso, you know, that guy, oh, Menso, get Menso. And I was afraid that if I left him, things wouldn't get better. But I left him and all of a sudden, where have all these other people been? What took me so long, right? That's how I feel about these jobs. These Some of these jobs that I no longer have, they were not good jobs. They were not good bosses. They were not good scenarios. And it's been a blessing to leave them behind. And once you have that experience, that's where you get that sense of independence because You're not afraid anymore. Around the corner, there's a better job. I can't even see it now because it's around the corner, but it's coming, you know? It'll be a great opportunity and I'm not going to miss this bad job at all.
0: So I can't let you leave without going a little macro because you know so much about what's going on in the country and in the world. And, you know, everybody's going through a lot and it's ever since the pandemic. And I'd love to get your perspective on what do you think the next few years are going to be like? I want to hear what you think about AI and the effect. AI is gonna have on your job and all of our jobs. Cause I think, you know, we thought we had pivoted a lot and now I think we're gonna leapfrog into the future hundred years. So what do you see going on in the world and what should we be cognizant of and aware of and just really plan ahead and pivot?
1: You and I are gonna be in a very interesting position because you know, 50% of you is a consumer of media and entertainment and the other 50% is a producer. And likewise with me, I'm 50% consumer and 50% producer. The consumer in me is loving it. I wanna play with AI, I wanna do all these things, I wanna say, count me in. Digital media, absolutely. Podcasts as opposed to radio shows that I've hosted in the past. So this whole new world as a consumer, I love it. The idea that we all walk around with the world in the palm of our hands to our phones. But as a producer, there's a lot more anxiety. Because as I said, because it's constantly changing, You and I could come up with an idea for a company and then if we're not careful, a year from now it's outdated. (laughs) You know, six months from now it's outdated because the media is changing so quickly. So I think producers have to keep an eye on things like AI and find ways to have AI help us do our jobs better. To oversimplify things just a bit. If you are in a job that you think can be replaced by AI, you're probably in the wrong job. There has to be something unique about you that can't be replaced by AI. There has to be something that I've done that means like can't be replaced so easily. And if I can be, then I don't have bring much value to the project after all. But again, as a consumer, I'm excited about all those various changes ahead. As a producer, there's a bit more anxiety, but also some excitement because chaos brings opportunity. And both in the world of media and entertainment, there's lots and lots of chaos. And there's a lot of interest going forward. I think everything that we used to believe about how things work in Hollywood or in New York, DC media, it's all different now. And the one constant is that the Latino community, which was already big, is getting bigger. And in the year 2042, which will be here in the blink of an eye, whites are going to be the statistical minority in the United States. And Latinos will be 25% of the country, 25% of the entire country, which means 50% of California and 50% of Texas. And we're going to be a a major economic force even more than we are now. It's going to be harder and harder, Nelly, for the white camp and the black camp to ignore us because we're continuing to grow and we're just doing our job and doing our hard work. And what I say before, we're not waiting to be praised. We're not waiting to say, you know, you're doing a great job. We don't need positive reinforcement. We don't need nurturing. We're not used to that. We don't need to be told
0: every day day we're anything. We're used to just hunkering down and grinding. How about what's going on in the country, the polarization, the election next year? What do you think is going on and how does that affect us?
1: I think that the polarization, yes, the fact that people don't communicate anymore, we don't listen to each other, there's no empathy, everybody seems to be out for themselves and their own ethnic group or their own tribe, and the sense that, you know, only people who are Jewish should worry about what happened with Hamas's attack on Israel and everything that flowed from it. So I wish there were more empathy, more compassion, a greater understanding. I think a lot of Americans are overwhelmed with everything they see going on in the world, And Nelly, I was talking to somebody recently. I feel like sometimes I don't have the bandwidth to switch over to some other thing I need to be paying attention to. If I'm focused on the election in 2024 and how is Nikki Haley doing in New Hampshire, and then I've got to switch the channel and focus in on the latest in the war between Israel and Hamas, and I've got to switch the channel because I'm looking at China and Taiwan, and then I'm looking at Russia and Ukraine. After a while, the human brain being what it is, I only have so much room in there I think it is very challenging for a lot of Americans they are just overwhelmed with all this news and information coming in. And the response is either turn off the television and tune out news altogether, which I hear more people doing, or they just come into their tribe and they focus on one thing and one thing only to the exclusion of other things.
0: Well, I'll tell you, the only thing that calms me down is to really go into history and study history, because I think what we all forget is that everything that happens to us has happened before a million times. And you know when you look at what's happening in Israel, You know I was in Israel last year and all the tour guides would say, do you know how many times this empire has fallen and it's rebuilt? And I think in the United States, we're a little more shocked because I think so many of us came from countries that were completely dysfunctional and we thought this was the safe haven. But actually what's happening in the United States has happened many, many, many times before in many other countries in the world and it finally came here. So I just remind myself of that. And then the other thing I think that helps me is I know so many young tech genius kids and I'm working with one in his company. I'm on his board. And he said something to me that really resonates with me, which I said, oh my God, I'm in Miami. It's going to be underwater. And you know, you start getting like the world is coming to an end. And he said, "Nelly, every day a genius is born." And they're going to invent the solution to every single problem. That was very comforting to me. And I think we forget that, that there's always these things happen and there are cycles in life. And I think you know this better than anybody. You just said it. I want young people to know for all of us that are successful and that are also long distance runners, as you said, we've been at it for many, many years. We've had horrific years, years where there's no momentum. And then there are years where everything good comes. And then when those years come, you got to go because it's going to go to the other side eventually. So you got to really like, it's like a little squirrel, put stuff away, you know? And I think for me, I'm so glad that you and I've talked so much about money today because bottom line too, is we can't act grandiose that money's not important. And it's all about the idea and this and that. That's a first world privileged point of view. And the rest of the world has to worry about money. We all have to worry about money for survival and for freedom. Because when you get money, that's really the point of it. It's not that it makes you happy, it gives you freedom.
1: So my final thought on this, I was thinking about money and my relationship with money, how complicated it is. I think that in those moments when I didn't have any money and worse, where I felt I had a skill set and a number of years I put into developing a skill set and there was no market for that. And I thought the only way I'm gonna make money is to go into a different line of work. You know, I'm gonna go do public relations, I'm gonna go sell soft drinks or something. And I thought, oh my goodness. At those moments. That's when money means the most to you, when you have none of it. When you start to have more of it, you begin to see this proper perspective about money and the fact that you want to have enough to do what you want to do, but not so much that you end up with a pair of golden handcuffs, as they say, which is a situation where, and all Latinos can relate to this, I hate my job. I hate my boss. I work with idiots. I dread going to work in the morning. I get a bad feeling in my stomach and a pit in my stomach when I'm walking through the door, but I can't leave the job because they pay me so well. I can't give up that paycheck. At that point, who has the power? You are the money. The money's controlling you instead of you controlling the money. And so I've always been fearful of that in the back of my mind. Another thing I've been fearful for is before I lost my job at the Union Tribune here in San Diego at the newspaper in 2010, in 2009, when my youngest